0: Hi, this is Andrew and this is Keenon, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it's Friday, June the 23rd, 2023. My guest today, Bethan Patrick, had an interesting piece on Literary Hub where Keenon is distributed. Uh, Bethan is a frequent commentator on Literary Hub, one of America's most distinguished literary critics and analysts. What I learned, uh, Bethan writes, about writing from reviewing. Uh, she has a new book out, but she's also a prominent reviewer. She says, and I'm quoting her here, the author's inattention to theme bothers me in many of the books I review. Easily overlooked, that theme is a narrative's deepest connective force, the thing that pulls all the other pieces of the story together. Your theme isn't love, that's your topic. Uh, so the question of theme, of course, according to Beth Anna, defines a book and, and she says that if, if theme isn't pursued aggressively or coherently or in a disciplined way, um, a book feels flabby and unfinished. Uh, and that's particularly interesting in terms of memoir. We've done couple of memoirs this week both with african american writers christian cooper uh who i interviewed earlier today better living through birding notes from a black man in the natural world uh and uh a black athlete rk russell uh some uh, national uh, football league uh, pro who came out as a bisexual man the yards between us they're both memoirs built around the narratives of their life. So when I was thinking about B- Bethan's comment on uh, the flabbiness and an unfinished quality of books, I wonder when someone writes a memoir, how to focus on theme? Is the theme your life, or is the theme an element in your life? It's an appropriate question to begin uh, our conversation with Bethan because she has a new memoir out. Life be overcoming double depression, and and Bethan is joining us from her home in Washington DC. So, uh, Bethan, welcome. Uh, I'm I'm turning the tables on you. Uh, when one writes, let's leave aside your own particular memoir for the moment, but when one writes a memoir, is the theme one's own life or an element in that life?
1: Well, first of all. Andrew, it's so delightful to be on this show with you uh, after knowing you on Twitter for such a long time. And I think it's fair to turn the tables because after all, here I am telling authors in a Lit Hub piece about, you know, what I think their writing should be like. I found that one of the reasons it took me so long to write my memoir is that I, like many people thought that a memoir was going to be about my life, but instead it really does have to be about an element of your life. And as I found out, and I'm sure some of your other guests who have written biographies and memoirs, know, autobiographies, I should say, uh, you may cover almost the entire chronology of your life, but you're not covering everything that ever happened. And in my case, the connective tissue, the theme was about my mental illness, my depression, my double depression. But I discovered something about it in the writing that really changed things, which is that what I was really writing about was coming out from under the expectations of so many other people and groups in my life so that I could make my own decisions about how to become a healthy person.
0: There's a doubleness to all this. You talk about um, having this this awful condition called double depression, which we'll get Mm -hmm. into. But there's a doubleness to the challenge of writing a, a memoir about a life in which you suffered from double depression. Yes. When the feeling of double depression is feeling that your life is flabby, and unfinished. So how do you get around that as a memoirist writing about depression?
1: That was a nice pull there, Andrew. I appreciate it. Uh, I did feel that my life was flabby and unfinished. I felt that I had not gotten to the point where I was fully me. And I would say, because I was being treated for depression, all along. I started treatment for depression in high school, essentially. And I would say something isn't right. Something is off. I know this is not what life could be. And I want to, people weren't dismissing me out of unkindness or cruelty, but they were saying, you know, come on, just go take a walk, make it a happy day, think happy thoughts. And I kept saying, no, there's something that isn't functioning the right way. So it was really difficult. I felt like I had a double life in effect. Um, So a flabbiness and a doubleness because I would try to maintain a very high functioning outward mask or appearance i would do what i was supposed to do i would show up as much as i could you know to school or work or events with a family and then when i was able to i would really collapse essentially just lie down and uh, you know give up and actually feel quite desperate and hopeless
0: perhaps an alternative title uh Bethann to the book is Becoming Fully Me. In, in terms of those other two biographies we dealt with, uh, Christian Cooper became fully himself after an unintended um, event, incident in Central Park when a, a white woman uh, in some ways threatened his life. Whereas um, oh. uh, R.K. Russell became fully himself, at least according to him, when he came out as a bisexual male. What for you allowed you to become fully Bethan Patrick? Is it knowing your condition of double depression or was it the medication or the process that allowed you it to escape from it?
1: I will say that when I was finally diagnosed with this condition, it was an incredible relief. And it wasn't the medication helped tremendously however it was the diagnosis itself that was the thing that allowed me to be fully myself because it was something I pursued I went after I said to my doctor I need more help I need to see someone else I need a different psychiatrist it was my psychiatrist's work with me That allowed him to say, this is probably what you're suffering from, and this is how we'll treat it. And to have someone after all this time say, you are not making too much of this. You are not stirring up a tempest in a teapot you really do have a problem, in my case, a problem that may have started with brain chemistry and some heredity factors, and also probably has been affected over the years by different stressors. But for someone to say, this is what it is, made me trust myself and it was a feeling that I had never had before. Uh, I talk a lot about my family, my upbringing, my education, and my marriage in this book. And in all of those situations, for different reasons, not because anyone was bad or um, necessarily abusive, but because people did not know about this, they didn't have any way to help me. It must've been awfully frustrating for a lot of people, friends and family members and colleagues to hear me say, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. And for them to think, there's nothing we can do. What else can we do? What, you know, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. So I, I think that, as you said, Andrew, that was what allowed me to become fully me, that trusting myself. And that actually is something that both the gentlemen you're talking about, both of these writers also probably felt when they got to you know, the point where they could say, I am bisexual, I'm a bisexual man in this culture, or I am a birder and I'm black and it is not the province of just, you know, white men and ladies to pursue this incredible hobby. When you finally stand up for yourself and say, I know what I need to keep going and to really live into my dreams, it's a, it's a huge difference. It really, it really is life changing. And one of my friends said to me a few years back that she had never experienced watching someone change their life until she watched me walk through all of this. And that was a very powerful moment to know that I'd been seen that way.
0: Is the condition a form of, of, in a sense, being imprisoned within yourself, locked in yourself? You you bring up the fact that your your daughters, your husband, your relatives, your friends struggle to communicate with you because, of mm-hmm. course, only you know what it's like to become fully Bethan Patrick. They yes, can, they can give you advice, but they don't really know. Yeah. So, w- what advice does your book Life Be give? to the relatives, the loved ones, the friends of people who are suffering from double depression and who don't quite know how to go about it. It's, it's always a big struggle. Yeah, do you try to cheer people up? Do you try to become yes. a doctor? Do you try to say to them, pull yourself together? After all, as you're suggesting, Becoming Fully Me is a Bethan-Patrick project, and it's not something that anyone else can understand or even participate right.
1: in. Right. <laughs> Uh, there are two things I want to say about that. One, and I've talked about this before, one of the things that I learned as I really grew into healthiness, because you can be very functional, highly functional, Andrew, and still be unhealthy. And one of the things I learned in my journey, which still is in progress in becoming healthy, is that being a depressed person, truly having um, not just uh, this thymia, which is chronic depression, but undergoing periods of major depression, or what we used to call clinical depression, you become quite a narcissist. And it's almost because you have to, you are thinking so often that you should die that you should die by your own hand, that you're worthless, that the world would be better off without you. I could go on and I won't. Uh, but you're thinking of that so often. And it's that's all about you, it's all about you. It's so much a narcissist, a kind of narcissism. And that doesn't mean it's the same as narcissist personality disorder. I'm just saying it is something that makes you quite solipsistic. Okay. And then the second thing I would say is that, um, When you are in this kind of of illness and you're trying to figure out how to get out of it, you have to deal finally, and this is another thing I've talked about, with the sort of anxiety that underlies any kind of mental illness or psychological trouble. Anxiety is at the root of it all. And I always thought, oh, I'm not an anxious person. You know, I don't tap my fingers, you know, repeatedly. I don't um, do this or that. I had all of these ideas about what it meant to be anxious. And I didn't realize that actually I was very anxious. You know, you are very anxious when you're depressed. It's something that has a great deal to do, and that's why they call it depression and anxiety disorder on, you know, psychiatrists' um, bills and things like that. Did I miss think, part of the uh, question,
0: Bethan? Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Um, do you think you can write your way out of a depression? Because I think what you're talking about is this search for. Definition, shall we say, the opposite mm-hmm. of, of flabbiness, the, the search for a, a finished life, the search for purpose, mm-hmm. which is the nature of writing, especially memoir writing. So did you feel in terms of writing this book and your condition that you needed, if not to be fixed, certainly to address these issues before writing the memoir, was the act of writing it one kind of cure?
1: Absolutely. It was one kind of healing, I'll say. Um, one of the things I'm grateful for is that I received before I started to write about any of this, so that I am not confusing the act of writing the memoir with, oh, this is what he, this is what made me all better. I know that I need medical support and treatment. Uh, For me in particular, I am beyond, the doctor says I am beyond the algorithm. I've had enough episodes of major depression that I'll probably need to be medicated for the rest of my life. Uh, There are new treatments now for all kinds of depression. Some of them, for instance, if I have some Bad depression in the future, I might look into ketamine therapy. Uh, I can't do the transcranial magnetic therapy because I have um, some metal um, from a fracture in my body. Um, But, you know, I'm not taking medication for the rest of my life as a crutch. I'm taking it because I know it's necessary. However, to get back to the act of writing and what that did for me, as I as I said, um, you aren't always all better just because you take new medication or you receive a diagnosis. You have work to do. You have work to do on anxiety. You may have work to do in making amends to people in the past. You may lose some people uh, along the way. But while you're doing the work, writing can be a very powerful way. Of helping you to understand how you got to the point of diagnosis and proper treatment and how you move on from that. You know, it's not like it, 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 life be as. Anyone who has read it knows the title does not come from a bifurcation. The title doesn't come from, I lived like this and now I live like this. It has something to do, it it has to do with the optometrist's um, apparatus and whether you can see more clearly in B or A, B is clearer for me. So it's more about clarity. It's more about um it's more about making a decision, making a choice. It's not about one part of my life was terrible and one part of my life is sunshine and flowers. It's about I was able to do this when I couldn't see clearly and now I'm able to do these other things. So I've really changed my approach to the idea of I'll I'll never be cured of depression. It just isn't, that's not something that's going to happen for me. But I can be a healthy person who, you know, understands my depression and also sometimes, you know, uses the knowledge I gained when I was in the deepest, darkest places to be compassionate to others, I hope.
0: Yeah, you, you have a great podcast, uh, beth Ann Missing Pages. Oh, thank you. you. Nominated for some awards, uh, the Webby Awards this year, put mm-hmm. out by uh, Podglomerate, who also worked with us uh, with Keen On, actually. Um, it's called Missing Pages. Is in an odd way. It's an interesting title because that's what your narrative and your life is about, the missing right. pages and finding those missing pages. Uh, where do you look where do you begin looking or where did you begin looking for those missing pages
1: well you know i don't think the Podglomerate, which is an incredible company and i have a great team there i really really love working with them i don't think they'll mind if i say this is their first uh completely original show which is so exciting because i was yeah. hired to host it and we- don't
0: feel uh don't feel um shy about upsetting people. Uh, every minute. So if you're not on the show, and you don't upset someone, you've done a bad job.
1: <laughs> no, I would say that originally, they had come up with this idea, and it was going to be more like a gossip podcast. And listen, I love gossip podcasts. They're great. But uh, when I came on because of my own missing pages, because I was still in the process of finishing my book, I looked at some of the uh wonderful scandals and grifts and things like that that have happened in the publishing industry, like Dan Mallory and The Woman in the Window, his big bestseller that he wrote under the name AJ Finn. Um, and of course, he lied about a lot of things. He lied about degrees that he had, he lied about books that he'd written. He he just he lied about family members being dead. It was just crazy. So anyway, they they presented me with like this list and I looked at it and I said, "Okay. So what if we went deeper for each of these stories? What if we looked into a story about someone who has scammed people and asked why? Not just how they did it, not just the details, but, you know, is this because this person is you know, um, mentally ill. Is it because this person has had other scandals in their past? Is it because they were misled by someone in the publishing industry? And so, the more we dove into those questions, the richer the show got. And of course, it also took us a little bit longer to produce and script than than we thought. But I think that's why people responded to it because. I don't want to say necessarily that um, I didn't write the scripts all by myself, and it's not all about me because I had a producer and a, a, an assistant producer who just brought their A game to the table. Um, Kayla and Jordan, I want to give them shout outs um, for, for season one. But I think my saying, look, you know, I'm at a point in life where I'm thinking, about big issues, and I'm thinking deeply about these issues, and I don't want to just get on and say, oh, ha, 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 look at this, you know, silly, you know, this silly goose over here. I want to ask about, you know, what the goose's motivation is. Now I'm really mixing metaphors.
0: Uh Beth-Ann, the book Life B is not quoting from you, not, it's not just all about me, Beth Patrick. It's a book which touches on our broader culture people have described it as the age of anxiety we've done so many shows on the crisis of mental ill health uh, yep. mental illness one with kylie leddy on young women one with thomas Insel, who's the mental health czar of uh, california one with phyllis vine who believes that uh, mental health activism is the next civil rights movement one yes. with uh, richard Roy Richard Grinker, who analyzes the crisis of mental health in times of the crisis of capitalism, one one with Lucy Falks, an excellent English writer on COVID and ill health, and one with Dr. Nicholas Carderis on the relationship between mental mental health crisis and social media. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've escaped yourself. You've written this book, which is about escaping yourself. Your crisis is, of course, about yourself. But there are many other people going through the same thing. To what extent do you think that our age will be increasingly defined in terms of this crisis of mental ill health? Or are we simply coming to terms with a reality which for for one reason or other we chose to avoid or ignore?
1: You know, it's always interested me to think about the ways in which mental health has been dealt with through the ages and that's something i think it's important to put a pin in as we talk about this andrew because some people might mistakenly believe that it's all you know because of social media or the pandemic or it's our modern times that are causing depression look you know um We've been talking about Achidia since the Middle Ages, and we were talking about depression and mental health in the time of Plato, as Dr. Cardaris um, pointed out. And these are things that have always concerned um, uh, human beings, our, our mental state now when it comes to actually talking about it, that's a different thing. For instance, when you are working like Dickens in a boot blacking factory in England, maybe you're not spending your precious 15 minute break of the day talking about your mental troubles. You know, God, I feel so blue today. You know, you're, you're busy, you know, getting something to eat and drink and maybe stretching your limbs one of the things that i think has contributed to our discussions about mental illness and mental health is that we do have more leisure right we do we um we have more time for thought and that has brought people like you and me into you know talking As whether as pundits or podcasters or writers, about various issues that really do connect a lot of people in this big globe. But the other thing that I think is we've had a stigma around discussing mental health in America very specifically, um, in the 20th century and in the 21st century, and there's a story I tell in the book, and I'll be very quick about it here. Is I was working at a wonderful, wonderful place, and in this place, you were allowed to go to a clinic for about an hour each day for anything. You maybe you had a migraine, maybe you were nursing a baby, uh, maybe you just you know needed to take a break. Anyway, I was starting to have panic attacks, and I had never experienced them. They were terrible. This is probably 15 years ago. And I went down there one day and said to the nurse in charge of the clinic, listen, so-and-so in my office has diabetes. And when something goes wrong for her, her blood sugar is really off. You know, everyone is very supportive. We all really care. You know, someone brings her some orange juice, blah, blah, blah. Is it, You know, possible for me to talk to my boss about my panic attacks so that I don't always come down here and miss, you know, an hour of work that I'm supposed to be doing. And the nurse looked at me without hesitation or irony and said, You must never tell anyone that you are mentally ill, you'll lose your job. And that was just 15 years ago. I know things have changed, and I'm really glad they have. I'm glad we're talking more about this stuff. But, you know, it's the stigma about discussing it, I think, that is really the hallmark of our age, rather than are we all more depressed or more mentally ill than we ever were. I I think probably like most human traits, it is not necessarily... A change in number or in intensity it's just a change in what we're seeing and what we're talking about.
0: So in that sense uh, are you sympathetic I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Phyllis Fine. It's kind of I'm a, not
1: and I would like to
0: be. Uh, but do you see the next major civil rights movement as being the mental health activist movement people? Uh,
1: I don't know if I can go that far but since I don't know her work yet and I also don't know enough um, about movements like that, but I will say this, I think mental health affects so many aspects of social justice. And I know for a fact, and this is something that's in my book, from having a very ill, mentally um, unstable grandmother who lived in our small house, the small house I grew up in, with us, um, and I know from experiencing that close hand, she, without my mother and father, would have been homeless. And I know so many people, and I should say, unhoused. Um, so many people who are unhoused right now have different levels and kinds of mental challenges to overcome. Uh, I am someone who is a white a white woman of privilege. And so I have been able to get mental health care and I can go to a doctor and be taken, you know, with some level of seriousness that I don't think is given to everyone. Not every underrepresented group has the privilege that I do. And so I do believe that mental health issues and Um, concerns and resources, um, lack of resources, I should say, will definitely be a big part of the next civil rights movement, even if it's not mental health by itself.
0: Finally, uh, Bethan, you mentioned that you were beyond the algorithm, but of Mm -hmm. course, new medicines are determining in, in some ways, perhaps that nobody is beyond the algorithm. And as we become more and more mixed up with machines in the 21st century, be perhaps increasingly hard to distinguish between humans and machines. You also note, both in this conversation and in the book, that your double depression was addressed and in some ways um, not cured, but uh, certainly positively addressed by, by modern medicine. Right. As we make, we collectively, society make strides, technological strides with new medicine. It's it's true also in the obesity epidemic and all these new drugs dealing with obesity. Will there be, do you think, or should there be moral issues about what people should and shouldn't take in terms of medicine? What happens if we come up with pills that do away with depression but might have some other consequence? Are we stumbling, falling into a, a brave new world here when it comes to our increasing dependence on uh, on medicine to confront our mental illness?
1: I think this is really an important question, uh, Andrew. I'm so glad you asked it. And I wish I were someone who had a lot more information about it. I do think- Well, it's just yeah. your,
0: yeah, I mean, maybe not- No, so, no, 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 no I, I will I will give it- Here's... Your, your, your instinct- as as a patient as someone who's gone through this process
1: my instinct as a patient is that there could be a lot done wrong with drugs that either you know take away something completely or drugs that are given in an involuntary manner or drugs that promise more than they can deliver. Or like with Ozempic, I know one of the things that people keep talking about is, oh, great, it drops, you know, 15 pounds, but then you get this funny, you know, face effect, kind of like a a reverse Botox, I guess, or something. And you don't know. This is one of the things um, my current psychiatrist and I, my, the one who diagnosed me had to retire because of health reasons, not mental health reasons, physical, uh, physical. Uh, And so my current psychiatrist is very holistically inclined. And we really look at the interactions between my drugs for my depression and my, my double depression and how they work with other things that I take. And I'm not talking about Ozempic. I'm not taking that, but I think, think you don't know. And sometimes you don't know for a long time. You know, when Peter Kramer wrote Listening to Prozac, a lot of people like me, who had started taking it, thought, oh, don't rain on my parade. You know, Prozac is making it possible for me to get out of bed in the morning. But he was right to say, we don't know what it will be like when someone's been on Prozac for 30 years what will that effect have on them? And so to go back to your question or your original question, I think there are going to be ethical considerations. And I particularly think about this, Andrew, because I know that in the political climate we're in, especially with health concerns for women and our bodies and our right to control our own bodies, there could be a lot of difficult Mm. There could be a lot of difficult things around uh, drugs that are used for moods, drugs that are used to stabilize people, um, things that uh, people believe are part of them and they're happy with them, but someone else thinks that they should be different. I I think it is a very scary thing. It's It's a big topic and we need to talk about it more.